This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department has just wrapped up the biggest deployment so far of its multi-billion dollar electronic health record. The latest wave of MHS Genesis installations just about doubled the system's footprint in a single day. And the massive IT project is now about a third of the way through finishing. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu's got an update on what defense health officials have learned so far and how the system will integrate with Veterans Affairs' EHR project. The latest series of deployments, dubbed Wave Carson Plus by the Defense Health Agency, brought 25 separate military installations into the MHS Genesis fold all at once. Those bases were scattered across 12 different states, stretching from California to North Dakota to Missouri. And Holly Jowers, the acting program executive officer for Defense Healthcare Management System, says the latest rollout went a long way toward helping the department iron out the kinks in the Genesis deployment process. This was really a good experience for us to learn how to navigate those geographic challenges, because that was the broadest uh, geographic range we had done with the deployment to date. So coming out of that deployment, where we were able to do 25 MTS at one time, we were able to look at how we can leverage uh, virtual uh, support as much as practical, leveraging our Pay It Forward campaign to uh, get folks who actually use the system uh, today to go forward to those sites and lend help to their peers so that they understand the nuances of using the system to aid with adoption. So I feel very confident going forward that uh, we are in a consistent process of uh, incorporating lessons learned each time we go and that we are uh, resourced to manage those stacked waves. Since the first MHS Genesis deployment in 2017, defense health officials have maintained they could deploy the system at all 475 military treatment facilities around the world by the end of calendar year 2023. And despite a pause in the program's early days because of problems in the initial wave, George says she still has high confidence the department will meet that target. But achieving it will mean a significant ramp-up in deployments starting in fiscal 2022. For the first time, DOD will use a stacked model that installs Genesis in several concurrent waves rather than scheduling them one after another. Eight waves are scheduled for next year when Genesis will make its way to MTFs in and around Joint Base San Antonio, Lackland Air Force Base, Fort Hood, Fort Bragg, Fort Bliss, Fort Gordon, Eglin Air Force Base, and Navy facilities in Jacksonville, Florida. According to DOD budget documents, that acceleration in deployments will mean the department will need to hire nearly 900 new contractor personnel. George says some of the early preparation work for those waves is already underway. We are going down next week to kick off Eglin Air Force Base and Jacksonville waves. And we start this process. It's known. We start 18 months out with a kickoff and a discussion with the commanders. And every step of the way is clearly defined. And so while we may discover things that need uh, that we can learn along the way, the process itself is standardized. We know what to expect We know that we have to have people in place to to look at user accounts, and we know how to convey that to the commanders, what to expect as part of this deployment and adoption. And so those are the things that give you confidence moving forward that we can handle the stacked waves and and the deployments, is that now it is a rigorous process that we go through. And anything that we discover, whether it's a new medical device that needs to be brought online, we have a process to handle it that is efficient and effective. In the meantime, DOD is working on implementation plans for what will be one of the biggest tests of Genesis's ability to interoperate with the Department of Veterans Affairs. VA has purchased the same commercial EHR Genesis is based on and is still working through its own struggles at its first deployment sites. 
But at the James A. Lovell Federal Health Care Center in North Chicago, clinicians from both departments work side by side. That's perhaps the most interesting use case for what's meant to be a fully integrated health record, says Bill Tinston, the director of the Federal Electronic Health Record Modernization Program Office. What we're doing at the moment is we're looking jointly, the VA, the DOD, are looking at the end-to-end business processes that are in place there to make sure that we are delivering configured workflows that support the way that that facility operates. And personally, I think this is an opportunity for us to look at other future convergence opportunities on the workflow side that can take the IT out of the decision uh, loop for the, the administrators of these two healthcare systems so that they can make the decisions they want to make about how to collectively deliver healthcare with IT not driving that decision or limiting their decision space. So I'm very excited about what we're going to accomplish at the, the James A. Level uh, Healthcare Center. It's a single system, and we're looking at how to harmonize the workflows to make sure that the workflows work for the combined team in that location. There are other joint sites that we're looking at similar things, but without question, the most integrated facility is, is that facility. In the near term, the next major deployment of Genesis will be at all of the military's health care facilities in Hawaii. Those rollouts are scheduled to be finished by the end of this fiscal year. After that, the next major deployment will be at Joint Base San Antonio, home of the Army's largest hospital, Brook Army Medical Center. And even though the department feels fairly confident in its deployment process at this point, there's still plenty more to learn, according to Brigadier General George Appenzeller, the Defense Health Agency's Assistant Director for Combat Support. I think what we're learning is less drastic each time, but every time we do something new, we find new things that we can do better, better ways of training, additional things that we need to work on. And as we add capabilities, there are new techniques and procedures Uh, And that's why having the informatics team so heavily involved with our clinicians, with weekly calls leading up to any rollout. Um, We have on-site with all the commanders to go over uh, all of the things that they can and can't do. One of the most impressive things is actually the data management capabilities that we have where we can actually see how much time people are spending in the record during duty hours, after duty hours. And what we found is that what some people colloquially call uh, pajama time, but after duty charting has gone way down in the locations that are Genesis, which means that not only is the safety getting better, people are getting home to their families, which a rested, happy uh, provider is a much more productive provider and takes better, safer care of our patients. And ultimately, it all comes back to safe, effective care of our patients. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about 
how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that's at the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop 
And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants, and I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the. Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. 
And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.